This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Look into the Rear View Mirror. And the author is Carolyn Noah Gretz. And Carolyn joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Carolyn. Hi. Hello. Great to have you with us. Uh, this is a memoir of your growing up in the countryside of Carroll County, Mississippi, and talks about your moves and your graduating from high school and getting into nursing school, and and the rest is a, a beautiful history, isn't it? I, I like to think of it as history because I do share chronology of history and the history of my life up to uh, before I, right after I married. I haven't written the second part of this memoir, which I'm encouraged to do, but I really want to share it with others because I think everybody has a story to tell. And it's important to tell it. That's that's why you wrote it. Yes, indeed. And so as you look back on your life, you look back on those early years, and I, you get in a little bit about your uh, your mom and dad as well? Yes, and definitely. So where, where did they come from? Both of my parents were born in Carroll County, Mississippi, and all of their parents except one were also born there. It was after the Dancing Rabbit Creek Treaty, which people might have to look up on Google, but it was when Greenwood Lafleur at the time, but later Greenwood Lafleur, signed this Dancing Rabbit Treaty, Creek Treaty, with the U.S. government. And my ancestors landed there in the 1830s. And uh, my, I have one grandfather who was born in Alabama and didn't come to Mississippi until 1895. But we have a long history in Mississippi, although I do live in New Orleans for over 50 years. Now, you've included photographs. Yes. I had the good fortune to meet a man and marry a man who... Uh, did darkroom photographs since he was a little boy. And so he took all of those photographs and redid them for me. So I have photographs of my grandparents and, of course, me and other folks in my family. I even have one photograph in there of a great-great-uncle who served as a, in the Confederacy with his photo and his family, Samuel or S.P. Johnson. That's on one page in that book. Well, you graduated from high school in 1956. Why did you decide to go to nursing school? I had, since I was in the second grade in the country school, that was a three-room school at the time, later it was a one-room school, wanted to be a nurse. And so it just 
came true. And my dream. I got on a train in Winona, Mississippi, which is 10 miles north of my town, came on the city of New Orleans to New Orleans, and I knew one person here. She met me at the train, and I took the testing to get into nursing school, and I stayed here after that. I I was selected to be a member of the class of 1959 nursing school. And so that was a not only a dream come true, but a launching of a long, great career in nursing, and you've done a lot of things along the way. I have, but I'm, I'm a blessed person because I have had the motivation to study, and I still study a lot. I'm studying Portuguese and Spanish. Now we travel to Brazil usually once a year. I love studying. I love getting up in the morning and thinking about what am I going to study that day, although I usually have it planned. And after I went to nursing school, I went to anesthesia school, graduated from anesthesia school and married that same year. But later on, after marriage and having two children, I decided I wanted to get a BA degree. So I did that at the University of New Orleans. I have a big, big interest in horticulture. And if that had been available here in New Orleans so that I didn't have to drive to Baton Rouge, I'd have a degree in horticulture today. But I'm happy that I had the BA degree. It was very enlightening and learning so much about different things that I hadn't thought about before. Nursing is, it's, it is not a narrow profession by any means because you meet people from all over the world and especially in New Orleans because it is a port city. So, and I volunteer now at what we call the Historic New Orleans Collection and I'm as a result of doing that, when I am there every week, I meet people from Croatia, from every state in the United States. It is so much fun, and I'm glad that I can give back in a place that I love. You write that you were born into a family that was disciplined to work and expected to do so. That was just the bottom line. That was the bottom line, and that we all have done that. I'm one of five. And we all, I didn't, let me see, I worked until I was 66 years old. Katrina came, and I gave up nursing and just decided I could volunteer, which I do a lot of that. But each of my siblings, they, we have all worked beyond our 65 years, except one. One is not. 65 at this point. He'll just be 60 this year, but he's a hard worker. All of us are hard workers. That just goes with the family. And you also write that you were brought up with a belief in God, and you grew up knowing the importance of helping others, and I guess thus uh, nursing came so easy for you. Yes, and, and it does today, even when I go out any place. If I see somebody that needs help, like 
rolling a wheelchair or getting their walker or it's just part of my inner being to help others. Now, of course, your life, like everyone, you've had some hardships along the way, some adversity. What would you say would be some of those uh, moments in your life, some of those adversities that have really perhaps helped you? I do believe that if people allow adversities to help instead of harm them, that they can grow from them. One of the, I mean, when I came to New Orleans, I was so homesick. But despite that, I put my head to the book and studied, met a lot of different people. Another thing is I had a son who had a drug problem and actually went to jail because of it. And that, for a mother, is an awful thing. But my husband thought that we should let him, it was a federal jail. My husband thought that it was important to let him learn. And I, it was hard for me to go along with that. But it is true that he learned. And he doesn't have a drug problem today. So I'm happy to say that about him and to say that we will overcome if we strive to do that. And I'm real proud that today he lives in Rio de Janeiro, speaks another language, and we get to visit him. That, But that is the biggest obstacle that I've ever had. I mean, lately I've had some arthritic problems and had a hip replacement, but even that has gone wonderfully. So how do you view, looking back in your life, some of the problems your father had with alcohol? Oh, that was a really serious problem. It made us very poor because, I mean, he was a hard worker, but he never knew how to put a little bit aside to save in the bank. And even when I went to nursing school, I borrowed the money from the bank. We went up to the bank in that little town, and three people went on a note. So to get back to my father, I will have to say that even though he had the drinking problem, none of us really have that problem. And I feel blessed that, and especially I don't have the problem because my husband sometimes teases me. I know it's teasing, but he says, you're no fun. You don't drink enough. (laughs) (laughs) But my favorite drink is water. Yeah. Well, that's uh, it's a good thing to be drinking, that's for sure. So, to get back, what the alcohol did is it made my mother and father yell at each other all the time. They perfected the art of yelling. Mm. And my mother, after I was married and much later on, used to think that I could do something about it. But we all know that once... A person 
whatever it is they try to, they have to know they themselves need to work on it. My dad would have never admitted he needed to work on it until it was too late and it had affected his brain. And you've stayed in contact with a lot of your nursing school classmates. I did. And this year, I've just finished within the last two weeks mailing, well, emailing the ones that I, oh, I email all the news of all the classmates. I've kept in contact with all of them except one I've lost entirely, and that's out of 22 people. That one, I have no idea of where she is. But the others, I do have some idea. And I write a little note every year. And those who do not have email, I send, I, I call and I talk to them. I have a couple nursing school classmates, one who has cancer uh, in the mouth and another one who has ovarian cancer, and they've been treated several years. So I always keep the others in contact with what is going on with them as well. And I visit, one of them lives here nearby, so we visit her. So it's important to keep notes, keep a log. What's the best way to do that? For me, it's another part of being the way I am. I had a diary in nursing school, and if people have the book, they can see little things that I'll say, Dr. So-and-so yelled at me today. (laughs) It was brief, brief in those days because I was too busy studying but I would tell the first day uh, when I had saw a fi- spinal tap or mm. different things like that. And in those days, it's brief. Nowadays, I still keep uh, a log of what I do. Yesterday, I attended a Tennessee Williams event that was just so much fun. And so I was able to write that all down. Not only do I write notes, I keep all kinds of other things and I keep them in chronological order of the days that I did them. I, a friend of mine's husband said, you should have been an archivist. Well, in a way, I'm, not, I'm my own family archivist. <laughs> and you save photos and you label them, you keep track, uh, make sure that everybody knows what is what this means, the significance of it. Well, absolutely, because I do have photographs, and I label them with a date and where they were. And then in sometimes if I oh, spend some time later on need to look back, I can look at my log and say, oh, yes, I was there today. And then that brings up other things that I might want to put on the photograph. Well, it's just a great, uh, great tribute to you, Carolyn, for being so uh, very responsible, very responsible in in this legacy, your life, and others that were around you for your posterity and others to read. So let's see, a look into the rearview mirror. That's the title, and Carolyn Noah Gretz. That's the author. Carolyn, tell us how to get your book. Well, they can order it from me, and I found out it's on Amazon also. But actually, 
calling me up, and I don't mind if you give them my number, I mean my cell phone number, I can mail it to them cheaper than they can get it from Amazon. <laughs> Uh, but at any rate, do you want me to give you an address? or You have my cell phone number. Right. The cell phone number is 504-957-0547. And, and people can I, call you and they can get the book directly from you or they can go to Amazon or authorhouse.com yes. and get it as well. I will, of course... Ha- if they get it from me, it will be a signed book. Yes, yes, that would be nice to have, well, definitely. Tell me who they are and how to get it to them. That's right. Yes. Well, Carolyn, you've been a delight. Thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much, Steve, for calling. You have a great day. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to Mm -hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Dreams and Misunderstandings, a novel. And the author is Stephanie Jones, and Stephanie joins us now on Author Talk, all the way from New Zealand. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, and thank you very much for calling me. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, It's beautiful in New Zealand today, so this will be a beautiful interview. I hope so. (laughs) Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, We'll get into the details about this love triangle. And it spans Wyoming, Boston, and England, and even gets into France. Uh, 
misunderstandings and jealousy, you write, threaten to tear the lovers apart, but a strange twist of fate brings them back together. You also like this cross-cultural differences, and that seems to be an important part of the story, and of course, these experiences of the various protagonists. So, Stephanie, uh, why write the book? Is this something that you've always wanted to do? Is it something to do with uh, your career, or how did this all start? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and then why you wrote the book. Um, I think because uh, I was born in, in London in England, and it was post-war, and um, my mother came over from Canada. She was a war bride, met my father, and they got married, and um, he, his work was in London. But um, at the time, of course, London had been bombed out, uh, bombed out, and it was very difficult to get accommodation. And um, so for the first six years of my life, actually, we lived in a very small flat in London, and um, it was on about three levels, and we had to keep quiet so that we didn't disturb the neighbours. And so from a fairly early age, we were actually learning to read. And um, so reading was a big part of my life. We didn't have an outdoor life at all. And um, actually, later in the book, I'll, uh, later in the interview, when I talk about why I picked um, places like Wyoming, I think because my Canadian, um, well, my mother's Canadian relatives used to send us books, and um, they were all about cowboys and Indians and the huge plains <laughs> and the mounted police and all this sort of thing. And for mm. me, that was extremely romantic, these huge, wide-open places. And, um, you know, I was just dying to go there. And um, so I kept reading it. I mean, I was brought up on, on the sort of American classics as well as the English ones. And um, we immigrated to New Zealand when I was nine. And... Um, which added another sort of cultural dimension to my life, being sort of half Canadian, half British, and then ending up in New Zealand. Um, but I was always a huge reader, and English was my best subject at school by far. And, um, you know, and I used to enjoy writing at school, but then I never really, once I got into the workforce, I didn't do a lot. I used to write the odd, when I was in the fashion industry, I used to write the odd article for magazines and things. But it was always sort of at the back of my head, when I've got time, I'll write a novel. And, um, I, you know, I've got friends in the same boat. We all sort of laugh together. Oh, when we've got time, I'll write a novel. A novel. And um, finally, I sort of got to the point where I was only working part-time and I was having chunks of the day without a lot to do. And I thought, right, I'm going to write the book. So um, I did, sat down and wrote it. It took me two years on and off and didn't tell anybody I was writing it except one sister, and um, finally confessed it to my husband after I'd finished writing it. <laughs> and really, that was how it all happened. Well, let's talk about the characters a little bit and get to know them. Uh, tell us, first of all, about Jesse. Uh, he's, she's the only daughter of a wealthy lumber baron. Tell us about Jesse. Well, Jesse lives in Wyoming, um, brought up to the best of everything um, in a not terribly happy household. Father's a lot older. Um, the mother's from Texas, but she's a very social sort of character, always wants the best for her daughter, and Jessie's a bit of a tomboy and um, loves to ride, uh, loves dancing, and um, her very closest friend lives a little way away, but... Um, and she is the younger sister of the um, hero of the 
of the story. And um, and it's about Jessie's growing up, really, and her attraction for Rick, who's the hero there, um, and the separation when she's sent off to Boston to college and um, comes back and meets up with Rick again. And um, and so the story continues. Yeah, she, she's very... Um, she, she's she's a nice girl. She has nice friends. Um, she's very studious, and um, she's just totally devoted to Rick, really, from a very early age. So Rick is the son of a Navajo father and English mother. Is he kind That's of right. the the uh, friend that lives across the track, so to speak? That's right. And he's he's a few years older, and. Um, he teaches uh, Jessie how to ride, and his English mother teaches her how to dance. And um, she goes to their house quite often, like two or three times a week. And she finds in that household, even though they they don't have much money or anything, but there's a very warm, loving family feeling, and there's three children in the house. And um, she finds a family atmosphere that she doesn't have in her own house. And um, then Rick uh, loses his father at a young age and he has to leave school and sort of take over the running of their ranch, and which he does, but he also continues doing his schoolwork at home. So he's a very busy fellow and um, gets very serious, works very hard, uh, doesn't have much time for socialising, but um, he's always loved Jessie since she was quite young. And um, but didn't ever dare tell her because he was four years older and sort of just kept it to himself. And it's not till she comes back for her first um, summer holiday from her college in Boston that uh, the two of them sort of openly recognize how they feel about each other. Well, let's talk about Scott now. He grew up in a wealthy Wyoming family as well. Yes, and his parents are the best friends of Jesse's parents. And um, he's a year older than Jesse, and they always, the parents always believe that one day the um, two children will get married and they'll combine the two business empires and everybody will live happily ever after. And they go on skiing holidays together, and um, she sort of regards Scott as a big brother, really, but um, he's a sports jock, and as he gets older and bigger, he gets more of a bully, and he's always sort of trying to push push her around a bit and um, when they go skiing he sort of you know tries to force her into going on ski run she's not happy with and um, so she grows up as they get older she's sort of a bit wary of him really but um, he's a very arrogant fellow and he just is very tall very good looking and um, he just assumes that they're going to get married without actually doing any work for it or trying to woo her at all he just thinks that that's what's going to happen and he doesn't realise that Jesse's affections have actually gone somewhere else. And when he does find out, he gets increasingly violent about it. And um, that's kind of where the story goes. I guess thus the title, Dreams and Misunderstandings, that's part of it. Now, why did you choose to have uh, one of the heroes of a mixed race, Rick with half Navajo, half English? Um, because I think we live in a world where people are becoming more multiracial and it makes the 
story to me more interesting. You know, I live in a very multicultural society here in New Zealand, and um, it's yeah, it's just to me, it just makes the story more interesting. And I can see why a young, uh, you know, the, the Rick's mother brought up in England to a very stultifying sort of uh, life where she's been in boarding school and living with um, unwelcoming relatives on her holidays and things and a father that really doesn't want to be bothered with her. And um, she talks him into letting her go to Wyoming for a year working on a ranch. And that's where she meets and falls in love with this young Navajo man. And um, it's sort of instant attraction. He sort of represents everything that's opposite to what she knows. And, um, yeah, so she decides to make her life with him, and they, they never, ever regret it. It's just tragic that he gets killed early, early in the piece. Now, does Jessie's mother, does she understand what her daughter is feeling? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> she's, uh, she's. I think uh, as Jessie's grown up, she's felt felt a bit of disappointment in her because she's not, um, you know, Jessie's happiest in jeans and a and a sweats and things like that. And the mother wants her to dress and design her clothes and do the right things. And uh, she wanted to send her to Switzerland to school there for her final year, and Jessie refused to go. And um, she sent her back east to university in, in Boston, I think, hoping that she'd sort of learn, a summer, learn uh, some of the graces in life, if you like. Um, but Jessie sort of rebels against her mother, and um, they kind of resolve that by the end of the book, but um, only after they've been through a few upheavals. Who's Caroline? Caroline is Rick's mother. Rick's mother. She's, she's She's the English Rose. Mm. Okay. She's the English. Now, do Caroline and and uh, Jesse's mom know each other? Yes, they do, but um, they're not particularly friendly. Um, Jesse's uh, mom sort of recognizes that um, Caroline has these the sort of... Um, because she's, you know, she teaches ballet and she teaches dressage, and so those are the skills that she's teaching to Jessie. So um, Jessie's mother kind of accepts that and is, is pleased, but at the same time she's a bit snobbish about the fact that they've got no money. So um, yeah, there's a bit of feeling there. I think <laughs> they're not best friends, put it that way. What about the, the characters? Are they modelled after people you know? Um. Not particularly, but, you know, I'm at an age when I've traveled a lot and I've met hundreds and thousands of people probably, and um, they're not stereotypes as such, as such, but they are people that I probably, they're probably amalgamations of people that I know. Nobody's exactly anybody that I know, um, but I have met people who are similar type, put it that way. I don't think, if, if you knew my friends and relatives, he wouldn't say, oh, she's that person and he's that person because that's not the way it is. But um, there are certain types of people, I guess, that are sort of mirrored in the book. And I've always been a bit of an observer of people too. I like watching people and getting to know them and things like that. So, um, And I hope I can emphasize enough with the way people are feeling in different situations to be able to write about them. How much of a theme is this... Uh, a man's thinking that he can dominate a female through violence. 
I think it's unfortunately it's a very common theme. It's um, something that there's a growing awareness of, or a huge awareness of around the world. I mean, really, up until sort of maybe only 60 or 70 years ago, I think a lot of violence went on in homes that nobody ever talked about because divorce certainly wasn't acceptable. And a lot of women sort of put up because they, um, I mean, it's only probably only 100 years ago since women even were able to own their own property. So you couldn't leave a violent situation if you were in one. You just had to try and manage it the best you could. Um, now I think we're a lot more vocal about it because, um, you know, women can leave. They do have, they can divorce. They do have their own, can own their own property. Uh, but there's still far too much of it goes on. And um, there's too many women, I think, that, that put up with it still as well. You know, I've been involved with um, things like Women's Refuge, where they've taken battered women and, um, and, you know, a lot of them flee their families in the middle of the night. You know, they'll grab the kids and disappear. And, um, you know, after a few weeks, they sort of regroup, get over it, and then they go back to the situation again. And it's very frustrating for the social workers who are trying to sort of change the way of thinking. But, um, you know, I think it's still still very endemic, unfortunately. But in the end, in your novel, Love Conquers All? It does. Yes, it does. Um, through a strange quirk of fate, I think Jesse and Rick, they, because he's in Wyoming and she's in um, Boston, and then he goes to Britain to stay with his English relatives, and they... Their sole communication is really um, by cell phone and Skype and uh, what have you. And um, they get into a situation where neither of those works and they can't contact each other. And so they both come to totally the wrong misunderstanding. And um, it's only a strange twist of fate sort of two weeks, two years later that they meet again. Well, I won't give too much away by talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and... Of course, the running theme in your book about these cross-cultural differences, yeah. Yes. That's important to the story. Yes, I don't think I realized until I wrote it that it's actually important to me as well. Um, you know, I think, you know, it's funny, actually, I went to a party the other night and I was talk talking to a man from England and he emigrated he at the age of 50 two years ago and he'd been here before and he said, you know, I... My wife and I love New Zealand. We decided to retire here. But he said I wasn't prepared for the cultural differences. And and I thought that's interesting because, you know, our predominant language here and in England is English. Um, it was English people who settled New Zealand. And um, we're probably more allied to the English way of life than we are to anywhere else. And yet he still felt this feeling of dislocation. And, um, it, I mean, it'd be far worse for, for Asian people coming to live here who don't even speak the language. So, um, yeah, it is. I mean, my, my mother sort of went from the prairies of Canada to London after the war, and I think she must have felt major dislocation. And um, when the opportunity came for them to move to New Zealand, they, they didn't hesitate. And um, even though it was sort of slightly foreign to both of them, but they, I think it was an easier compromise than it was to stay in England. And um, it, it does, it sort of, you don't think about it consciously, but it kind of informs your life. You know, like if I'm in England and people say to me, where do you come from? I always say New Zealand. But if I'm in New Zealand and people say, where do you come from? I say England. <laughs> 
And if you asked me what nationality I was, I would say um, sort of Canadian, English, New Zealander. <laughs> so it is always there. It's, uh, I think maybe if none of my family had gone back to England to live and I didn't have relatives there, it might be different. But mm-hmm. I've always got a foot in both camps, if you like. We've been listening to Stephanie Jones. She's the author of her book, Dreams and Misunderstandings, a novel. Stephanie, tell us how to get your book. Um, it's available through um, book resellers, uh, booksellers, and it's available online. Um, Author House, uh, the publishers, they have, uh, you know, I think you can buy it through them. Um, yeah, I think you need probably need to go online because it is available as an e-book. Right. Very good. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your new book with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one's spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, TrishaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Wars at Work, an action guide for resolving workplace battles. And the author is Kaveh Mir. And Kaveh joins us now from London. Hello, Kaveh. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us on Author Talk. Uh, Before we get into the different battles that you're going to help us focus on and and see even the positive nature of these battles uh, because there can be a lot of synergy derived from conflict. Uh, Let me read a couple things you've written just so everyone understands a little bit broader about this topic and then we'll find out about you and why you wrote the book. 
You asked this big question, have you ever at work said to yourself, oh my God, who are these people that I'm working with? From which planet are they from? And you wish someone from somewhere would explain to you what is happening with them. The book Wars at Work is doing exactly that. So I think we've all been through that at work. We we just have uh, personality conflicts, don't we? Correct, indeed. I think you've, you've kind of said it well. Uh, we all have differences. We all have different preferences, different decision thinking uh, framework. Uh, we have different values, different beliefs, different experiences, and all of that combined together really makes who we are. And and it's no surprise that you know each of us with so many different parameters that works in different dimensions, when, when we get together, there is a potential for misunderstanding. Well, your book has a, a number of battles of leadership, career, communication, decision-making, conflict team, learning, change. Uh, you talk about these psychometric measures. What do you mean by that? It's a very interesting question, you know. Uh, I suppose, you know, when we want to really understand something, we need to have some agreement of what and how are the dimensions for us to talk about that thing. So let's, let's, let's take an example. If, if we want to talk about, for example, uh, me, uh, we can talk about my, my physics in terms of, you know, I've got a dark hair, I've got a dark eye, you know, my, I've, got, I've got certain height and certain weights, uh, which we're not going to go into that. Uh, so there are a number of dimensions that one can use to describe a physical body, you know, weight, height, size, color, and so forth. Now, when it comes to personality, the same thing is required. We need to have a framework. We need to have a vocabulary to be able to describe how someone would potentially have preferences, you know, what are the traits of someone's, emotionally, how that person behaves. So psychometrics are instruments designed that by asking certain questions in certain ways to retrieve, to drive various information that one can use to describe the personality of someone. Of course, these are not tools and instruments that you see generally you know, all, all around the websites. These are instruments that statistically have been approved by governing bodies, for example, in UK, British Psychology Association, and they've been through rigorous tests to have the reliability and validity required to be able to determine, to explain, to illustrate how someone might behave differently to other people. Each of your chapters, you have a vignette of, at the beginning. Explain what that vignette, what they're about, and why you decided to do it that way. Is that, you know, uh, the, the, the whole idea behind the book really comes from a number of years of, of myself either being in, in conflict or being a witness or being called in to try to resolve a conflict. So really the idea behind the chapters and why we, we come up with, with these kind of titles is based on experience that these are the most common areas where potential conflicts can happen. And each of them have certain 
um, uh, ways that are different to other ones. So the idea is to describe what are the most common areas that particularly there is a potential of misunderstanding and try to kind of separate them and explain them one, uh, one after each other in such a way that is unique to that particular type of problem. And then you also have the central character, as you call this, uh, well, he's, he's kind of a personification, I guess. You call him the Admiral. Now, what kind of role does the Admiral play in the book? Well, the, as you can imagine, Admiral is, is the person who usually gets called in to try to have the third-person view of what is going on. And Admiral is trying to find out what is the root cause of potential conflicts in, in some of the scenarios in the chapters that you mentioned. So Admiral is, is, is almost like this wise person who has had many years of experience of using various different psychometrics and also familiarities with some of these type of conflicts. So he usually gets called in by various uh, characters of all these cases to step in and try to um, uh, find out what are the root causes of some of these problems, some of these conflicts that are happening. Today, with the way the business economy is all over the world, we're being asked to do more with less. How does your book help us to deal with that very important bottom line issue? Basically, if you think about it, you know, typically when people get together, the typical questions that initially need to be addressed is, okay, so we're together now. What should we do? How should we do it? When should we do it? So we can call this type of uh, uh, differences in opinion kind of a shallow conflict. They're, not, they're very shallow. There's about what to do, how to do, and when to do. Now, during the current climax, when we are asked to do more, typically a number of things happen. One is the decision time is much shorter because we need to be faster to respond to changes that are required for us to keep that competitiveness that we need to have. So the time of thinking is, is, is reduced because we have to do more, we have to make decisions faster. And also potential access to money, to to various different resources that are required is also reduced. The combination of reduction of time in thinking because we have to do, because we have to do more and faster and, and access or less access to resources makes the conflict to go from what, when, and how to who and personality clashes. So when, when this happens, you know, all of a sudden the focus is no longer on the what's, on the how's, and the when's, it's more on oh my God, you know, I don't like you because your values suck. You know, I don't like you because you're different to me. I, I don't like you because I believe you hate me. I believe you have something against me. So all of a sudden from uh, a kind of a shallow conflict, we, we dive into deep conflict. And because of current climax, because of how the whole situation, how much change and how fast change is required, the potential for conflicts are more. Of course, the other reason is the whole idea of the globalization, which means we are now seeing more people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different preferences from 
totally different geographical location and as you and I, totally on different time zones, are now trying to work together to collaborate. Of course, all of these differences, if they are not managed, if they are not identified with the speed at the right time, at the right place, could potentially create problems. And I might, I guess, add to what you just said uh, in your chapter three, which is the battle of communications. You you kind of uh, give this illustration of what you were just talking about, this winning over the warehouse. Now, why don't you kind of go into some details with, with that illustration? So basically, in chapter three, we're talking about the communication. We're talking about that different people, depending on... Uh, what is their preferences? They have different ways that they would prefer to talk, to communicate. If we are not aware of our own way, of our own preferences for communication, we have no chance and no hope in the world to have appreciation of different, different methods and options for communicating, which then creates a total uh, decoding process from the information that we send and we receive, which then potentially could cause misunderstanding and conflicts and all the problems that goes with it. And of course, these wars at work, they're all around us. It's going to happen in our uh, our life as well. We're always dealing with different personalities. And most of us literally have no training or support to deal with them effectively. And thus, that's your book. I think it's spot on. I think as you said it, you know, I, I see the differences as a hidden resource that if is used wisely, is identified, is nurtured correctly, could create innovation, productivity, collaboration, and synergy. On the other side, this potential resource, if it's not used wisely, not only is not beneficial, it could actually cause a huge problem. You know, in my, in my sessions, I usually uh, give the example of, of the differences between people like oil. You know, if oil is retrieved properly from underground and is used and is turned into product, it's really valuable. But just imagine if oil just comes out and you don't control it, you don't use it properly. This is, this, this, this is going to be a very dark, smelly, greasy product that not only is useful, it could cause huge damage to the environment and to the people that are living around it. We've already addressed asking everyone to do more with less. And then, of course, there is the ever-present, which seems to be happening more and more, the merger the merger that seems to be the perfect thing to do, but all of a sudden, here we are mixing all these different personalities, people who don't know each other. You, you, you're so right. You know, usually, I mean, uh, there are uh, different services carried out, and typically the reason for mergers could, could, could be something as, as, you know, a potential synergy for financial productivity to create more wealth for the shareholders, or even just ego of the leaders trying to take over another business to show that you know we are bigger, we are stronger, and now we can compete better. But as you said, a very very important aspects of of the merger is usually either missed or not enough attention is given to. 
and that is the values and the culture of this organization. This is almost like the iceberg, you know. People see the tip, which is about um, external productivity and more wealth for the shareholders, but they miss what is under the surface, which is the culture and the differences in values and how people behave and work in, in different entities. So your book has this premise that you say is simple, and I'll read what you've written. If we become aware of and learn to understand the personality differences between ourselves and others, we can build a conceptual framework within which we can solve workplace problems constructively. So it's a real focus on understanding these personality differences. It's a key, key thing to do for success. I definitely believe that. I think, you know, understanding self is a first step that would enable us to move from accepting diversity to respecting diversity and ultimately valuing diversity without the first step, which is knowing about self. I don't think anything is possible. The title of the book, Wars at Work, an action guide for resolving workplace battles. We've been listening to the author, Kaveh Mir. And Kaveh, tell us how to get your book. Book is available on various different um, electronic shops. You know, you can order it from Author House directly on the website. Or alternatively, you can uh, purchase it from uh, most of the Amazon sites in U.S., U.K., Europe, uh, either as a paper copy or as an electronic Kindle version. Well, thank you so much, Kaveh, for being with us on Author Talk. It was a pleasure speaking to you. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and thank you for having me on your show.